All right, let's pray and get into God's word tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word is living and active. God, we thank you that your word has the power. Um, it, is, it is sharp as a sword and it pierces uh, through thoughts and intentions, dividing bone and marrow. Lord, we invite the sword of the spirit. We say, Holy Spirit, come, illuminate God's word for us tonight. We thank you, Jesus, that your word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. And we pray that that, that, that lamp would shine brightly on the face of the Father for us tonight and that we would see you clearly. Father God, that is my prayer. I pray anything that would hinder us from seeing the Father clearly tonight would go in Jesus' mighty name. We say, Holy Spirit, have your way. No other spirits welcome in this room but the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. We say, come Lord and have your way in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. And amen. All right, guys, so we are continuing our Selah summer sermon series. The word Selah is a Hebrew word that means to pause. I knew, that's my mother-in-law. I knew you couldn't stay silent for a five-second pause. That's Mary. That was a test. I was testing you. Selah means to pause. To pause, to reflect, to stop, to rest. Things that as Americans, we are not super skilled at most of the time. And we just sense the Lord was inviting us into a summer as a church family of learning how to rest in God. And it's encouraging. I've been having some conversations this past week that have encouraged me so much, particularly with one man, in, uh, one man who spends a lot of his life traveling the globe and interacting with believers all around the world. And he said, you know, in my world travels right now, I'm seeing and hearing the same thing, whether I'm with Christians in Indonesia or in Africa or in Utah. It seems like God is stirring something. There's an excitement, but it's not quite yet yet the time for it. It's almost like God is stirring up something, but we're still recovering from the last couple of years, and there's not quite the energy yet to go full send into the things that God's stirring up, and that the global body of Christ is being invited by God to rest. And I was like, well, that's cool, man. Do you want to come preach? Actually, I had already asked him to come preach in a couple of weeks. So you're going to get to hear from Lydia Brooks' dad. You're going to get to hear from him in a couple of weeks. Um, and I said, well, that's really encouraging that you're seeing that all over the globe because that's what we hear God saying in Salt Lake City. And so we've taken the word rest and turned it into this acronym as a tool to teach our hearts how to say law, how to pause, and we, it's simply remember, exalt, surrender, and trust. We remember who God is. We remember the gospel. We remember what he's done. We remember how faithful he's been. We first look back and recall who he is. And then in those places, we begin to worship him as we remember how faithful he's been, as we remember his healing in our lives, as we remember the gospel, we just begin to worship. Exalt is where we are tonight. We're in the E. I'm going to unpack this a little bit more in a second. We surrender in the place of anything that was just heavy or weighing as we're taking a pause, as we're taking a breath. It's an opportunity to cast our burdens on the Lord. It, Peter says he cares for us. We're learning how to not carry our own burdens, but surrender them to the feet of Jesus. And then 
to trust, to walk away. It can be a 20-second pause in your car at the stoplight. It can be a two-minute prayer as you're laying in bed at night. Or you can journal through this for an hour. And, and so we've actually made available these rest journals. I only have three up here. There's more in the next room. But if you want one, put your hand up. If you haven't got one yet, I'm going to toss these out right now. If you need or want one of these rest journals, shoot your hand up real quick. Michaelis, come on. Here you go. Anybody else? I got two more right here. Want one of these rest journals? Come on, James. Nicely done. Two for two. Come on. Anybody else need one? Anybody else? All right. Well, they're up here. They're also in our next room if you haven't grabbed one. And so tonight, we are leaning into the E. Murray did a phenomenal job uh, preaching last week on remembrance. And tonight, we're talking about exalting the Lord. Um, Exalt is a very uh, simple and powerful word, but I think a word that even as we come to sing together, I exalt thee, we might not always know what we're singing and saying. But very simply, it means to hold someone or something in very high regard. Say high. To think or speak very highly of. Say highly. The Latin root word, Altus is where we get our word for altitude, okay? So exalt, do you see it in there now? Is to make something high. It is to lift something high. It is to elevate someone or something with your honor, with your esteem, or with your thought life. To exalt is to make something higher, It's to lift something higher. And Murray last week shared this incredible insight that whatever we exalt expands. Basically, whatever we esteem as the highest in our lives gets bigger in our lives. The things, I like to say it this way, what we magnify multiplies. So some of you might be having a problem. I don't know. There's, you know, it's been a rough couple of years, and sometimes we can kind of get in a rut of complaining or of pessimism or focusing on everything that is going poorly around us. And the, the, the reality of this word exalt, or when we say what we magnify, multiply, is that it works both ways. And so if you decide that you're just going to focus on all the bad things that are happening or just complain or talk about all the bad things, you're actually going to magnify more of that in your life. And it's probably going to lead to you feeling pretty discouraged, pretty dejected, and pretty frustrated and pessimistic about the world. Because you're choosing to lift high above you the problems around you instead of the God who's surrounding you. And so in the rest, this process of Selah and resting, we are choosing to exalt God. We're choosing to lift him higher and magnify who he is because what we think and what we talk about actually gets bigger in our minds. It expands in our hearts. And then we actually will carry the faith and hope and love that are anchored in God, even though there is stuff around us that's hard and heartbreaking We will stay rooted and anchored in him because we're exalting him instead of exalting our problems and exalting the things that are hard. Are you with me? So I want us to look at the nature of exaltation. And tonight we're just going to talk about worship. What does it mean to exalt God? What does it mean to worship God? I want you to flip to John chapter 4. 
verse 7. We're going to read my favorite story, my favorite interaction that well, this may be my favorite interaction Jesus had with anybody, but definitely the favorite conversation about worship. And I want you to read, we're going to read a lot of scripture tonight. So I hope you came hungry for the bread of God, all right? Because we are going to go through a lot of scriptures. John 4, 7 says this. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our, somebody say, father, father Jacob. He gave us the well and drank it from him, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sounds good, sir. Give me some of this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back out here to draw water again. Jesus, seeing the opportunity, moves from a practical conversation about a practical need that was driving this woman to the well that day and turns it to a spiritual conversation says, great, sure, I'll tell you about this living water, but why don't you go and call your husband first and come here? The woman answered, well, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman, ouch, said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> really? <laughs> Nobody, a total stranger, doesn't look into you and call out probably your greatest source of pain, baggage, and shame unless they are seeing something that the rest of the world cannot see with the naked eye. I perceive you're a prophet. And so then she gets all religious with him and wants to have a spiritual conversation. Check it out. Our, somebody say fathers. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the, somebody say it, father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What an epic moment. Jesus, this woman at the well, 
Theologians speculate that she was alone at the well in the middle of the day because having had five husbands, her reputation was such that she would have been embarrassed to show her face at the well during the normal hour of, of, of what's it called, drawing water, which is in the morning before it's hot. They speculate this happened in the middle of the day. The disciples were actually out looking for lunch. Nobody's at the well in the middle of the day. It's the hottest part of the day. That's why she was there, because she didn't want to be seen. She wanted to fly under the radar. That's what shame does to us. But the prophetic gifting of the Holy Spirit with Jesus saw right through her shame that day. And... led to this incredible encounter where he reveals himself as Messiah to this woman at the well. I want to see, see a few things in the story. Check it out. The woman came to the water because she was thirsty. Okay, a natural need, thirst, opened the door for a spiritual conversation, right? Most people, I want us to see that most people, once they got into the spiritual conversation, you remember she said, our fathers say that in the mountain is the place to worship, but your people say is in the temple. I want us to see that most of us start worshiping where our fathers started worshiping. Did you see that in the story? Our fathers say we worship there. Your people say you worship here. Now, that can either be a blessing, depending on where your father worshiped, that can be the greatest blessing and source of inheritance in your life, or it can be something that maybe you're still trying to recover from. So Father's Day is one of those moments where there's a tenderness on our hearts, but the reality is that most of us at least get our initial point of reference on worship from our fathers. For me, my household was a divided household on this front. My mom knew God and wanted to expose us to God. My dad had kind of moved on from belief and was you know, probably closest reference would be agnostic, and he wanted nothing to do with it. And so as a young boy, my mom would try to pull me to church but it was very ineffective with my dad wanting nothing to do with it because most of us will start worshiping where our fathers worship. Does that make sense? So the other thing I want us to see is that in this conversation, God apparently is more concerned about the how of worship than the where of worship. Do you see how she got geographical and said, your people, our, our fathers say mountain, your people say Jerusalem. It's kind of like, hey, where should we go to church? Where, where's the best place to go to church in the valley? There's a, I don't think Jesus is concerned as much with the where as he is with the how because he answers her where question with a how answer. Are you with me? Should we worship over there or over there? And he goes, no, 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 no. You're actually asking the wrong question. It's not about where. It's actually about who and it's about how. And so that's what I want to talk about in the time that we have left tonight. Jesus said, the hour is coming and is now here, John 4, 23, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people. And it's just really cool the way this is intersecting with Father's Day. I didn't create this message because it was Father's Day. It just became very evident that on Father's Day, God has something to teach us about worship. 
And I know it's 4.56 and it's sleepy hour. Can we wake up, plow through the next 20 minutes? Because I believe God wants a revelation for you about who he is as father. There's two things that I want us to talk about. The object of our worship and the nature of our worship. The object of our worship is a father. That's wild. Jesus referred to God as Father over 175 times in the Gospels. It was his primary revelation of God. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. We love quoting the Sermon on the Mount and all these great nuggets of wisdom and the ways of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is about the Father. It's about how the Father sees devotion He's reframing a religious culture, and on the Sermon on the Mount, he is pulling kingdom out of their religious framework. He's pulling kingdom out and teaching them how to relate to a father, because here's what the spirit of religion loves to do. The spirit of religion loves to separate you from actual intimacy and connection in a relational context to God. It wants to separate you into a series of do's or don'ts of spiritual activities and gets you spinning your wheels in activity instead of resting in intimacy. Religion is about activity. Relationship with a father is about intimacy. And so the spirit of religion goes nuts when we start preaching God as Father. And I want to prove to you because it went nuts against Jesus when he walked in it. Check this out in John 5. Man went away. This was the chapter after the woman at the well. Jesus heals a guy at a, 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 the pool of Bethesda. And he goes away and he, to, he told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, check this out. You're resting. Look what's happening on your Sabbath days. Hold on real quick. Before we read this, look at me. Rest, this is not, an, an exercise um, to pull, just, to, just to ratchet down our anxiety. It is an exercise to teach us that when we abide in remembrance, exaltation, surrender, and trust, when we rest, God works. Watch. My father's working. They say, hey, it's the Sabbath, Jesus. You can't heal somebody. You just healed somebody, and now he's picked up his mat, which was illegal to do. Specifically, Jewish law said, you cannot pick up and carry your bed on the Sabbath day. So Jesus heals a guy who's a paralyzed invalid, and he gets up and starts carrying his mat around in front of all the religious people, and they're ticked off because Jesus is working on the Sabbath. Look, my father's working until now, and I am working. But look, Praise the Lord. Out of the mouths of infants, he's enthroned in the praises of his people. Hey, don't you just love it when the Bible is really clear and tells you things? Like, hey, why were the Pharisees and all the Jewish leaders like so angry at Jesus and trying to kill him? Okay, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, here you go, but he was even calling God his own father. 
making himself equal with God. Two things I want us to see right here. Number one, when you are resting, God is working. When you are Sabbathing, God is working. Number two, calling God your father infuriates the spirit of religion. So much so that, that these same people that were seeking to kill him because he was calling God his own father actually succeeded. This revelation of God as our father, I believe, church, I, I don't know if you've noticed yet, but we live in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is a heavily saturated religious place. Jesus stepped into a heavily saturated religious context. And do you know what broke through and started a move and a revelation in a heavily saturated religious context? It was him knowing God as his father. It was him calling God, teaching God on God as father. This, I believe, this revelation of the father is critical for us seeing progress of the gospel in a heavily saturated region like Salt Lake City, Utah. It is the, it is the anti-religion. And when I use the word religion, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about everything that we do in and of our own efforts to try to get to God or make our way to God, we get stuck on a treadmill of constantly performing and trying to be better and better and better. And actually what transforms us is the gospel of God's grace where we say, you know what? We get to rest because Jesus has done the finished work for us. That doesn't mean I don't do anything. That doesn't mean I lean back and, and do whatever I want to do but it does mean that I am already accepted in God first before I do a single thing. I'm accepted by a father. I don't have to go and spin my own wheels. And so I want us to look at the father as the object of our worship. Check it out. In the scripture, I said over 175 times Jesus refers to God as his father. This word for father in all of the scriptures could be summed up to three primary Three primary characteristics of who or what a father is. Number one, a father is the creator or the originator. The father is a source of life. Number two, he is a caregiver, protector, and provider. A father is a place of safety. Number three, the father is a teacher, a mentor, or a caregiver. He's the source of wisdom and knowledge. These are the roles that fathers are meant to employ. They give life. They give safety and they give wisdom and they instruct in the ways of life. And I want us just to look at a few verses and the amazing things that the word of God has to say about the father. Here in John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. The father is the creator of life. Listen, without him, not anything was made that was made, including you. Check out Psalm 139. 
David says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. He says in 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was not one of them. God didn't just create everything in a very general blanketed sense. He created everything and then he very intimately, very intricately knit you together. He's the source of life. The father is not just a source of life, but he's the source of our salvation. Check this out. In John 1, also verse 10, he was in the world, Jesus. The world was made through him. He's the creator, source of all things. Yet the world did not know him. How sad is that? He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. How sad is that? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, don't miss this, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born of God. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Ephesians 1 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in every, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's interesting how the scripture holds intention your opportunity to believe and receive Jesus and to become a child of God and God actually choosing you before the foundation of the world in his love and in his foresight and foreknowledge, looking ahead and picking you. He's not just the source creator of life, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. He's actually the source of salvation that pulled you out of the domain of darkness. Check this out. In Ephesians 1, He says, I did not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. He's not just the source of life. He's not just the one that created you. He's not just the source of salvation that rescues you and gives you the right to become a child of God. He is the source of all wisdom and revelation and knowing him. That's why he's called the Father of glory. We don't catch a glimpse of him without him revealing it to us. So he's the source of wisdom. He's our teacher. And that is why he also has the authority as our teacher, as our guide, to be our corrector. And he corrects us as a father. Proverbs 3, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12, 9 says this, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us. We respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? They discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. 
So he's not just the source of all life. He's not just the source of all salvation. He's the source of all wisdom. And therefore, he becomes the source of all correction as a good father should be. Good fathers don't just instruct and impart wisdom to their children. They bring correction when their children are veering off the path of wisdom, which the Proverbs calls the path of foolishness. It actually says in Proverbs, a wise son makes a glad father. Some of you need to know today that God is pleased with you, that he is happy about your life, especially you men. I understand I am one of you, that I look at my 15 flaws before I look at the 30 things that I'm actually doing good in life. I don't know why we're built that way, men, but I want you to know that a wise son makes a glad father and that if you are walking after the Lord in the ways of wisdom, you need to know that you have a glad heavenly father. He's the source of your life. He's the source of your salvation. He's the source of your wisdom. And he's the source of your correction. We don't stop there. James 1 says, every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow due to change. 2 Corinthians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Are you getting annoyed at that word yet, okay? And the God of all comfort. I am just scratching the surface of the biblical revelation of God as the object of our worship being a father. The father of glory, the father of salvation, the father of mercies, the father of lights, the father of all comfort, the God who gives good gifts, the father that instructs us, reveals wisdom to us, and corrects us. He is the object of our worship. And if your worship feels uninspired, it might be that your revelation of the father needs some inspiration, needs some revelation, because the nature of worship, so God the Father is the object of our worship. The nature of worship is that worship is a response to something we see. You ever been driving down 215, going east, and you see the Wasatch Front Maybe it's winter and the Alpenglow, right? And it's kind of purpley orange up there. And it's just like, boom. And you've lived here for however many years, but you, or you've lived here two weeks, and you hit the Wasatch Front, and you're just like, whoa. You see something, and then what happens next? Words start coming out of your mouth. You might be by yourself. Wow. Worship is a response to seeing something. Are you with me? Revelation first, response happens. Maybe somebody's in the passenger seat with you. Oh my God, do you see those mountains? Truly, you can say it because God made the mountains. Okay, that's not a, oh my God, look at those mountains you made. Wow, worship is response to seeing something. Do you see how critical it is that we see God? that we see what Jesus was coming to reveal. We have to see rightly if we're going to exalt rightly. We have to see rightly if we're going to worship in a manner of which God is actually worthy. 
And sometimes, I mean no disrespect, that what we just had in here was powerful. I'm not referencing right now in this room earlier. But sometimes you come into a room full of people and we like start trying to sing to the Lord, but it's like we forgot what he looks like. And we're all here like, and we can hear it in the room, like none of us believe this right now. (laughs) Why? Because we forgot, remember the R and rest? Remember, we forgot how good he is, that he's the father of life, that he's the source of all comfort. He's the God of mercy. He's the father of lights that gives every good gift. We forgot how good he is, how big he is, how strong he is. And so we're now trying to exalt someone we can't even see in our spirit at the moment. We gotta remember the father. Remember, and, and, and honestly, guys, can I tell you something? God is so unbelievably, compellingly, fantastically, beautiful, glorious, sp- literally to the point where the Bible says no one can see him and live. Think about that. If we actually saw him with no filter, dead, Okay, look, but, but that's why Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God said, you can't handle all of it, but I'll hide you over here in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and as I'm on my way out, you can see the tail of me as it goes around the corner. Because if you saw me fully, you would die, but I'll give you a glimpse of my glory. When was the last time you asked God, show me your glory? Open my eyes. Look, church, this is so important. And I could tell, here's what I wanted to say, a little bit of laughter in there. Look, all of y'all been asleep for the last 20 minutes of my message until about right now in this moment. That is how hard hell is fighting against you seeing the Father. You're like, wow, is he gonna keep reading that much scripture off the screen? I've seen at least five people's eyes. Look, I know I'm not the best preacher on planet earth, but I'm telling you, it's five o'clock, and if you want a fresh revelation and say, God, show me your glory, bring your A game to church so that your heart can get a fresh glimpse because you cannot exalt what you do not see. And church, we gotta fight to see him as he is because the whole world and all of hell is fighting against us to blind us from who he is. Lord, show us your glory. Lord, show us the object of our worship, the true Father. Show us, Lord. The nature of worship, Jesus said. Now, church, an hour is coming, and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father, object of worship, in spirit and in truth, nature of worship. Check this out. If you can be a true worshiper that worships a Father in spirit and in truth, then I think if we do a little bit of deduction, that means you can also be what? A false worshiper. Can I get a show of hands here in Salt Lake City? Anybody interested in being a false worshiper? You'd be surprised. But listen, let that sober you a little bit. If we're not worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth, then we 
can actually slip into a place where we're not true, truly worshiping. We might be standing in the room. We might be looking at the screen, reading the words. But we might not be truly worshiping. And that's a, a bit of a scary thing. That's like a sobering thing. That's like, okay, Lord, like wake me up. I don't want to be a false worshiper, Lord. And so I need to see you because remember revelation and response. When I see you as you are, the word worship, the nature of worship is spirit and in truth. I want to talk about truth real quick. We've been talking about truth. Truth is the word of God. You cannot worship God unless he tells you who he is. So the nature of worship in truth is you got to know your Bible. you got to know the word of God. The word of God illuminates the character of God so that we can be true worshipers that worship the true God in truth. So that's the part one is anchored in truth. The nature of true worship is that it's anchored in truth. But it's also anchored in the spirit which this is crazy. This is so crazy. We talked earlier downstairs in our prayer meeting before church, which if you ever want to come and pray with us at 3.30, we're in the lobby. You're welcome to come in, all right? Listen, God the Father sent Jesus the Son. Jesus died, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of God so that he could send who? The Holy Spirit, track with me. God the Father sent the Son. Jesus ascended and said, it's actually better that I go away because I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit. He said to them actually in, what is that? In John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is kind of near the end of the slides. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world, I didn't give this to you, I'm sorry, that's me. John 14, Jesus basically says, I am going to ask the Father. He's going to give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Check this out. How did he not leave us as orphans? He, 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 he didn't leave us as orphans by sending the Holy Spirit. And then in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the spirit of sonship. And he says, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his son into our hearts. Check it out. God the Father sends the son. The son sends the spirit. The spirit of adoption gets into our hearts and what does it cry out? Abba, Father. Do you see that? That's what it means. You cannot worship in spirit unless you have the received the Holy Spirit. Worshiping in spirit is the cry of Abba, Father. Remember, the Father was Jesus' revelation. Jesus came more than anything else to reveal God as a Father. And when we, it says, for, for all who did receive and believe, he gave the right to become children of God. We receive Jesus. We believe in Jesus. And we become children of God. It's called adoption. It's a, a miracle act of salvation. We become adopted as children of God. And what happens when you become an adopted child of God is God seals you with the spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. Your adoption is sealed by a spirit of sonship that is teaching you to call out to God as father. 
Because an hour is coming, church, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship who? The Father. In spirit, Abba, Father, and in truth. I want to invite the band back up. And here at Antioch, we always uh, save time at the end to respond in song. To respond, right? Because revelation and response We have to see him first so that we can respond in true worship. And so we're going to respond and just take the next last 10 minutes here to step back in to a place of worship. And as these guys are getting set up here, I just want to tell you one last thing about the nature of true worship. Do you know what the word worship means? It'll blow your mind how simple how simple what I'm about to tell you is. Do you know what the Hebrew word worship means? It means to bow. That's it. It means you go low because you acknowledge one fundamental fact about life. There is a God and you are not him. Worship is a place of bowing low, exaltation. Do you see how this fits together? Is what we, remember altitude, exalt? What, what does exalt mean? To lift high. The simplicity of worship is we go low and God gets lifted high. This is what makes us true worshipers is that we bow acknowledging you are God, we are not. You're the source of all life. Go ahead and stand with me, or if you want, I want you to just bow with me, whatever you, but I want you to put your heart in a posture to worship your Father, to worship in spirit and in truth, to go low with your body. Sometimes what we do with our bodies actually tells our spirits and our souls to get in line, to remember there is a God and it's not me. So I bow low to you, Father. And I say, thank you for being the source of life. Thank you for being the source of salvation. Thank you for being the Father of lights, the Father of mercy, the Father of glory, the God of all wisdom and revelation. Thank you for teaching me. Thank you for raising me up to be a man of God. And thank you for correcting me, Father, when I veer off of the path of your wisdom. Thank you, Father. We bow low that you may be lifted high. Make us true worshipers. We bless your name. Bless your name.